Well, we are continuing on in our series through the book of Ephesians. Those who are with us for the first time or uh, just for a couple of weeks, uh, it may help you to know that we are preaching through this entire book, uh, verse by verse and paragraph by paragraph, in order to let God's Word just speak to us. And one of the, the great benefits of this kind of what we call expository preaching is that it allows God to dictate what we talk about. It keeps us from having our own hobby horses, our own favorite topics and preaching those all the time. And it allows God to, to set the agenda for us. It also allows God to set the timing for us. Uh, So we set out to begin a series through Ephesians. We're never quite sure where we're going to be when, when we get to the next paragraph. So this morning, God has set the topic. Uh, I am here to assure you that I would not choose this topic myself. God has set the agenda and the timing. This topic comes to us on Mother's Day. I'm not sure I would have chosen it that way. But God is sovereign, and God is good, and God wants to speak to us, and God has for us truth that we need. As we've been working our way through Ephesians, we've called this whole series, In. And it's about what it means to be in Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you love Jesus, if you have believed that he is your Savior and your Lord, that he is that one who has washed you clean on the inside and, and called you to himself, then, then you are in Christ. And being in Christ, we've learned in the first chapters, means that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We've been chosen in him and loved in him and adopted in him and redeemed in him and forgiven in Him, and accepted in Him. We've been made alive in Christ. We have ascended up into the heavenly places in Christ. In other words, our identity and our position is secure because we are in Jesus who is accepted and loved and cherished by the Father so that the way the Father looks at the Son is the way the Father looks at us because we are in Christ. Now, the question is, what kind of life should that produce? As we get to chapter 4 and verse 1, we read, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You have been called to be in Christ. You have been called to experience all these blessings. Now, there is a way to live that is worthy of that calling. There is a transformed life to live. And over the past few weeks, we've been seeing what that transformed life looks like. It's a life of unity and service in the church. That's the first 16 verses of chapter 4. It's a, or chapter, yeah, chapter 4. It's a life of putting off and putting on. Not, you'll remember, by self-peeling our own old character, but by the renewing and empowering grace of God. It's a life where honesty replaces lying, where hard work and generosity replaces laziness and grabbing, where forgiveness replaces bitterness, where good speech and kindness and love 
prevail. And it all kind of comes to a head in chapter 5 and verse 1. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So Paul is just expositing for us, expounding for us what the transformed life looks like, what it really means to live out the Christian life in a way that is worthy of our calling. And we're still in that section of Ephesians where Paul is continuing to tell us this is how to live, this is the difference it ought to make. And so we come to chapter 5 and verse 3 down through verse 14. And we learn that a life worthy of our calling, a life worthy of being in Christ, is a life that is walking in the purity light. It is a life that is walking in the purity light. My main concern as I preach this morning is to communicate what I think is Paul's main concern here. And here's how I'd summarize it. We are called, brothers and sisters, we are called to be radically pure in a radically impure world. We are called to be radically pure in a radically impure world, both to please Christ and to transform our world. That's the teaching of this text. We are called to be radically pure in in a radically impure world for two main reasons, to please Christ and to transform our world. Let me me unpack that for you this morning. And, And for those who are wondering, is there any connection here to Mother's Day? Well, can I, can I suggest to you that the text at least hints to us how God intended motherhood to happen? Can I suggest to you that it protects us from the sad and the broken ways that motherhood often does happen? Can I suggest to you, if you're a mother here this morning, that this is the message you want your children to hear? Because it is the message that will keep them from much heartache and much sorrow. So yes, this is a Mother's Day message. But I want to get out of the way here as we work our way through this text. I'm I'm not going to get fancy with it at all. Just going to kind of just lay it out in front of you. We We are called to be radically pure in a radically impure world, both to please Christ and to transform our world. And Paul gets at that here in this text by giving us a very simple list of don'ts and do's. There are certain things he says to us, don't do these things. And other things he says, do these things. Now, I don't know about you, but as soon as I come up against a list of don'ts and do's and do's and don'ts, my impulsive, instinctive legalism button gets pushed. I immediately go into at least the temptation of thinking how I do with these don'ts and do's is going to somehow determine my relationship with God. We have this impulse, don't we, to think that that if we get it right, God will love us. If we get it wrong, God's going to smack us. 
We, we have this impulse to think that somehow or other the sins we have done, and in this particular text, the sexual sins that we have done, affect how God looks at us. It, it changes the way He feels about us. And I'm here to tell you the gospel says no. You remember chapter 2, verses 8 through 10? Remember it? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Hear this truth. We are not saved by the good work of how well we obey God's laws about sexuality. We are not saved by the good works of staying sexually pure and chaste. We are saved by grace alone, despite all of our bad works when it comes to human sexuality. That's good news. Because I'm believing that if you are probably 13 or over, you've got some kind of track record that you're not proud of. In your mind, in your heart, with your body, with your desires, some kind of track record that makes you bow your head in shame, that makes you bow your head, that makes you blush, that makes you fear, that makes you wonder where you stand with God, that makes you wonder if you've already killed your chances with God. Paul says to us, we are saved by grace, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. You know, It is good news. We are not saved by our good works. It is also good news, I think even better news, if we sincerely believe in Christ, we are not condemned by our bad works. We are not saved by our good works. We are not condemned by our bad works because we are saved by grace and grace alone. But here's what we do need to hear. Ephesians 2 and verse 10 says, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved to do good works. We are not saved by our good works or condemned for our bad works, but we are saved to do more and more good works and less and less, fewer and fewer bad works for the glory of Christ, to please Christ, and to transform our world. Our works don't determine our relationship with God, but the quality of our works, and the quality, and the depth, and the, the, the realness, and the authenticity of our purity of life, in fact, is a product of our salvation, and the proof of our authenticity as believers in Jesus. And so, with all of that in mind, let's look at the text, and let's look at a series of don'ts, and then some do's, and again, just let God's Word talk to us here this morning. On the don't list, number one, don't discuss sexual sin. 
Don't discuss it. Notice, notice verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. That's a startling statement. Paul says, I don't want it even talked about. Don't make this a discussion point. Don't sit around talking about sexual sin as if it's just another topic of conversation. Don't name it. When it it comes to these things, he's not saying we can't list it. If he was saying that, then he'd be violating his own commandment because he just listed them. But what he's saying is, don't just talk about them. Don't gather around and say, well, what do you, did you hear about this? Or what do you think about that? Don't discuss these things. I wonder why Paul is so emphatic about that. I suspect it is that because the more we discuss things, the more familiar they become. And the more familiar they become, the easier they are to do. And so Paul says, first don't. Don't discuss sexual sin. For Paul says, these are not proper among saints. It's a strong statement. You know what a saint is, right? If you're a Christian, you are. I always get a kick out of when, when certain churches and denominations, they, they talk about canonizing a saint, turning someone into a saint. I say, I'm already one. Anybody who is in Christ is a saint. Anyone who is in Christ is a holy one. Somebody, the word saint just means to be consecrated, to be, to be set apart as belonging to God, to live life for God. That's every single one of you in this room who has come to faith in Christ. You are a saint. And Paul says to discuss sexual sin is not proper among saints. It doesn't fit. It's like a fish talking about desert sand. Why? Or a bird talking about being de-winged. Or, or a, an Eagles fan talking about the Cowboys. It doesn't fit. It's not proper. It's, it, it is inappropriate. And for a saint, for a holy one, to sit around talking about really any sin as a conversation point is just not fitting. Don't discuss it, Paul says. Secondly, don't laugh at or trivialize sexual sin. Oh, for our culture, for, for our TV habits and movie habits, and here's a word here for us. Don't laugh at sexual sin. Don't speak of it in a crude or joking or demeaning way. Did you, did you notice it in verse 4? Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Filthiness refers to that which is just dirty talk that, that prohibits us, friends, from profane references to sex from using terms and phrases and songs and whatever else degrades sexuality or various parts of the body from whatever else might cheapen or dirty this most beautiful and glorious of gifts that God has given to those who are married. Paul says, no filthiness. And he says, no foolish talk. 
It refers to just silly banter about sex and sexual sin. Often referred to as adolescent humor, but uh, my experience with people of all ages is that it shows up at all ages. And then he talks about crude joking, which refers to talk about sexual sin in any form, in a way that makes light of it, either by laughing at it, or using double entendre, or joking about adultery, or sleeping around, or homosexuality, or swimsuit additions, or famous people's sexual exploits, and the rest. Paul's saying, don't get any smiles out of sexual sin. None. Don't go there. And then he says, it is out of place. They don't fit. They're not worthy of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, if, if you have been redeemed by that blood that we sang about this morning, if you have been washed by the Spirit on your inside, if you have been born again, if you have been made a new creation in Christ, if you have been made a saint, if you have been adopted and loved and redeemed by God, if you have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit and given all spiritual blessings in Christ, and my dear friends, it just isn't right. It's not proper for us to joke about things that are sinful. Paul says, don't do it. Third, Don't be deceived by sexual sin. Don't be deceived by it. You see it in verses 5 and 6. Here is a sober warning for us. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Not a popular topic any day of the year. But friends, we must face honestly the truth. Do not be deceived by sexual sin. What Paul is saying here is, the deception he has in view here, is that sexual sin is no big deal. That it's not serious. That God doesn't really mind. God really doesn't care. It's something that you can easily get away with. One of the great risks of living in a culture like we live in, where, where these things just pervade our culture, they're everywhere, is that you can get so familiar with them, so used to them, and you see so many people who seem to get away with them, that you can get deceived into thinking God doesn't care. God does care. He does care. And Paul says that those who practice these things have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. If you practice these things without repentance, you are not going to heaven. No matter how loudly you claim to be a Christian. If you practice these things without repentance, you are not going to heaven. Or, it says, don't be deceived. It is because of these things that the wrath of God is upon the sons of disobedience. 
the wrath of God. Oh, we love to hear about the love of God. We love to hear about the mercy of God. We love to hear about the grace of God. And well, we ought to. We need to hear about it all the time, every day, all day long. But we do not know God rightly unless we understand that he is the holy one that we sang about this morning. He is the righteous one we sang about this morning. He is so holy, the prophet says, that he cannot even look at sin without feeling inwardly a settled, consistent wrath against sin. So what does this mean? You're sitting here this morning. You think you believe in Christ. You know you've committed all kinds of sexual sin. What does that mean? Are, are, are you doomed? Are we doomed? Our answer has to be very careful here. Please hear me carefully. If out of weakness and in times of temptation you have committed sexual sin, but you have grieved that sin, you have mourned that sin, you have asked God for mercy over that sin, you have trusted Christ to wash away that sin. And in your heart, you sincerely long to be done with that sin. Then you need not tremble over that sin. For God's mercy washes over us anew and afresh. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all. Unrighteousness. But if you have committed sexual sins and there is no repentance and there is no grief and there is no mourning and there is no commitment to change and there is no real care in your heart about that sin, then the wrath of God is on you right now. Now there's still hope. You can repent right now. You can trust Christ right now. You can turn from the sin right now. You can run to Jesus right now. Do it right now. And you will be saved. You will be forgiven. But stay in the sin and you will be lost. Paul says, Paul says, don't be deceived. This is this is not this is not inconsequential. This is not trivial. There, Be sure of this, Paul says. Be sure of this. Sexual sin, like all sin, is serious enough to condemn us to hell. Serious enough to condemn us to hell. As we're going to see in a moment, Christ's blood is pure enough and powerful enough to rescue us from hell. But you need to make a choice here this morning. You need to make a choice. Will you repent and believe? Or will you hang on to your sin as you rush headlong into a Christless eternity? That's the choice. Paul says, don't be deceived by it. He goes on, he talks, don't partner with sin. Don't partner with sin. Verse 
Verse 7, therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the, the light. Lost my way there. In the Lord. Then verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but indeed expose them. We as believers are not to share in, we're not to partner in, we're not to cooperate with the sexual sin that is going on all around us. We are not to, to buy its merchandise. We're not to watch its entertainment. We're not to enjoy its art. We're not to laugh at its humor. We're not to shrug off its sinfulness. We are not to walk in the same obsessed way of life. We are to expose it, not partner with it. We are to be different. Paul goes on says, don't, don't speak carelessly of it. In verse 12, kind of repeating himself, but because he does, I will. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Don't speak carelessly of these things. Should note here, please, please note. He says it's shameful to speak of these things because these things are shameful. Be careful of self-righteousness here. Don't treat people as if they're shameful. They're no more shameful than I am. There is not a single sin on the sin chart that I am incapable of committing. And accept, emphatically, accept by the grace of God. Accept by the grace of God. You name it, what's going on in this world, I am capable of doing. I would choose to do. I would crave to do, except by the grace of God. There but for the grace of God go I. Let us not be self-righteous. Let us never treat anyone as shameful. Though there are indeed many things done by us that are shameful, Let us realize that every man or woman or child ever created, made in the image of God and for the glory of God, and has a conscience that needs to be appealed to, has a life that needs to be held with honor, has a a soul that lasts for eternity and should be pleaded with for their salvation. But let's not condemn them. Let's not shame them. Let's call them to Christ. But Paul says, don't speak carelessly about their sins. So how do we, I don't know about you, when I, when I studied this text again, I just was in a fresh kind of way say, all right, this is a standard uh, we're not used to. We're not living in this world, we're living in that world. Um, all around us, is all the stuff that Paul says we're not to do. And, and, and we are so familiar with it. We're so accustomed to it. It's hard to get your conscience up to speed, isn't it? it it's, it's hard to, to feel the intensity of what Paul's saying here. It's hard to, to get our consciences aligned with the holy law of God. And I, So the question came to me this week, Paul, how, how do we sensitize our consciences to these things? How do we get our hearts connected to God's heart on these things? Can I suggest to you there are two ways? First of all, consider the cross 
of Jesus Christ. Think about what it cost to win your forgiveness from these sins. Think about the cross. Think about that on Golgotha, on Calvary, on that cross, the eternal, blameless, holy, sinless Son of God hung in open shame, forsaken by the Father, judged by the Father, feeling the wrath of the Father, stepping between us and the wrath of God and absorbing it into His own body, into His own spirit, into His own soul, so that wrath would never reach us. Think about that. Your sexual sin and mine, brothers and sisters, is no small thing. It cost Jesus his blood and his life. It made Jesus have to endure for those hours on the cross an experience he had never known before. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about the cross. There he was treated as if he was a fornicator, he was an adulterer, he was a molester, he was a, a luster. He, he was treated as if he was guilty of all the sins we have committed, even though he'd never done a one of them. Oh, think on that. Think on that. The old hymn, You Who Think of Sin But Lightly. Forgetting the rest of the hymn. (laughs) It's funny how that happens. Nor suppose your evil great. Here, where? At the cross. May view its nature rightly. Here, its guilt estimate. You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose its evil great. Here at the cross, can know its nature rightly, and its guilt may estimate. Oh, folks, friends, brothers, sisters, unbelievers here this morning, I'm here to declare to you how bad sin is by pointing you to the cross so that you can see what cost there was to redeem you from it. If you want to sensitize your heart to the sinfulness of these things, look to the cross. Look to the cross. Behold the love of Christ. Behold the amazing love of God. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Look at the cross. And then secondly, commit your life to the dues of this text. How do you you sensitize your conscience to the sinfulness of these things? Well, first of all, you look at the cross where the price was paid for those sins. And then secondly, move toward the list of dues, the things that Paul tells us to do in the text. Let me give them to you quickly. There are four of them. Number one, do give thanks. Verse four. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. What's Paul saying? He he is saying that 
Human sexuality and the gift of sex in marriage is such a gift, it is such a beautiful thing, such a wonderful thing, that the only way we should really talk about it is with gratitude. To joke about it, to demean it, to degrade it, is to go the opposite of what we ought to do. Don't degrade it. Do give thanks. Praise God for it. Bless God for this amazing miracle. Thank God for His goodness. It's amazing the change that goes on in your heart when you, when you start thanking God for things that are the opposite of craving the bad things. When you, instead of degrading this, you thank God for this. Instead of demeaning your wife, you thank God for your wife. Try that one out, guys. Instead of demeaning and disrespecting your husband, you thank God for your husband. Instead of demeaning children, you thank God for children. Instead of demeaning, you praise. Your heart changes. It moves in a new direction. Do give thanks, Paul says. Secondly, do practice Purity. Notice verses 8 and 9. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Paul says the way, the way to get rid of sexual sin in your life is to walk in the light. Walk in what is good. Walk in what is true. Walk in what is righteous. Go after the good. Practice purity. Practice righteousness. Practice goodness. Practice truth. Practice fidelity. Practice faithfulness. Practice respect. Practice gratitude. Practice the good. And the bad will begin to fall off of you. Practice what is good. Because you can't, you can't walk in two directions at once. You can't be walking toward purity and walking toward sin at the same time. You walk in the light. Walk toward what is good. Walk toward what is true. Walk toward what is righteous. And you'll be walking away from the junk. This is, this is how it's done. Put off by putting on. Put off by... Putting on. If, if you and I are intentional and purposeful and deliberate and determined and resolved and stubborn in our pursuit of the good and the pure and the holy, guess what? We will become more holy and we will become less sinful by the amazing, transforming, renewing grace of God. Third, do aim to please. Do aim to please. Look at verse 10. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. If you are in Christ... You don't need to do anything to be accepted by the Lord. Remember chapter 1? We are accepted in the beloved. In the beloved one. We're already 
approved. We're already accepted. We're already justified. We're already forgiven in Christ. You don't have to do anything to be approved by the Lord. But you do have to do some things to please him. To to make him smile. We parents know this experience, right? Our children don't have to do anything to be accepted by us. They are ours and they are secure in that. There's nothing. Doesn't matter what they do. They are ours and they always will be. But the reality is that there are some things they do that please us more than other things. There are some things that grieve us. There are some things that displease us. There are some things that just make us smile. I see it on Facebook all the time. Just track Facebook. And you're seeing a record, a chronicle of all the things the little kids do that please their mom and dad. This smile, these words, this action, that expression of faith, this obedience, that transformation. Mom and dad just can't help themselves. They're smiling all over and it comes through on Facebook because it pleases. And, And Paul is saying to us, Paul is saying to us, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. You're accepted. You're forgiven. You're loved. But think about it. What would please my Father in heaven? I'm in this moment of temptation. I'm in this moment of of trial. I'm in this moment where the world is appealing to me, where sin is enticing me. What would please my Father? See, that's deeper and sweeter than, well, what's the right thing to do? This appeals to your love for the Father. This is what Paul is getting at here. What would please my Father? The next time it's late at night and you're alone and you're tempted with the Internet, oh, somehow, somehow find the grace to ask the question, what would please my Father? What would please my Father? Aim to please Not out of insecurity. Not out of a fear that somehow or other if you don't get it right, God is going to pounce. But out of love. Out of love for Him. And finally, do change your world. Do change your world. Look at verses 11 through 14. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, by the light of our lives, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What's Paul getting at here? He he is saying that as we live, radically pure lives in a radically impure world, we honor and please Christ and we become instruments to transform the world in which we live. You see, there is something radically powerful and beautiful about a humble, pure life. The world doesn't know what to do with it. 
The world is in darkness. The world, the world is blind. The world is sleeping and dead. And we want to awaken the world. We want to say to the dead, be alive. And the, the way that life comes to them is as the light of Christ shining through us shines into their lives. And as our lives begin to expose the darkness. You see, the best way, see, this principle of purity actually is a mission principle. That's what Paul is getting at here. This is an evangelism principle. The best way to win unbelievers is not to be like them. The best way to win unbelievers is to be radically different from them. Not different in a self-righteous way. Not different in a, in a nasty way. Not different in a, in a scolding, hateful way as, frankly, we see too often among Christians. But different in a humble way. In an authentic way. In a sincere way. What does it do when the world looks at us, when we hold up marriage as something beautiful and sexuality as a gift? What does it do to the world when we hold faithfulness up as a sign of character and self-control as a mark of maturity? What what does it do to the world when we uphold the, the fruit of sex, children, as precious? When we honor motherhood as good and and family as wonderful, what, what does the world think when we treat women's bodies with respect, not as objects for our leering and lusting? What does it do when Christian women dress modestly so as to not call attention to their bodies, to the outward beauty, but to the inward beauty of the heart? What does it do when we consider gender and gender differences Not as things to be erased, but as marvelously designed creations of God intended for complementary glory and beauty. What does it do to the world when we elevate sex above the dirty and rescue it from the pit of mere impulse or lust or passion? What what does it do when we model to the world that sex is not about getting, it's about giving? It's not about being gratified. It is about giving myself to another human being. What does it do when we treat the opposite sex as being made in the image of God? What does it do when we post a a battalion of mighty virtues named honor and fidelity and self-control and beauty? and commitment, and self-sacrifice. What happens when we post a battalion of these mighty virtues around human sexuality and marriage and have them stand guard? What does the world think? When we take this, which it so often dirties, and we we place this gem on a a setting of, of Covenant love and commitment and marriage for a lifetime. And we make it beautiful in that way. What happens? We shine as lights in the darkness. 
And the light of Christ shines into sin-darkened hearts and lives. And the dead are brought to life. This is a mission thing. This is an evangelism thing. The world out there does not need cool Christians. The world out there does not need Christians who know pop culture up and down and all around. The world out there needs godly Christians, holy Christians, pure Christians, authentic Christians, sincere Christians, chaste Christians, faithful Christians. They need to see husbands who love their wives. They need to see wives who love their husbands. They need to see families who love their children. They need to see people. They need to see that God's ways really do work in His world. Oh, I call us this morning to this. Paul calls us to this. He calls us to live radically pure lives in a radically impure world that we might please Christ and transform our world. Oh, that God would give us heart for it, strength for it, will for it, for His glory. Uh, there's, I, I, I just know, there, there, just, there can't be a group this size, a group of human beings, without these issues being real issues for at least some of you. I'm suspecting for many of us, real issues. Can I call you to repentance? Turn and live. Can I call you to faith? Jesus died for your sins, every one of them. No matter how dirty, no matter how shameful it has made you feel, Jesus died to wash you clean. Clean, clean. I mean clean. Clean. Wash you clean. Accept you as one of his sons, one of his daughters. Will you not, in your own heart right now, just cry out to him for mercy? Just say, Lord, save me. I need you. I need you. Cry out to him. He will come. He will rescue. He will save. He will cleanse. He will transform. For that's what it means to be in Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.